The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 today. We took a break in the month of December, all five Sundays. We've been going through the book of Corinthians. We just began the book, got through chapter 1 and a little part of chapter 2, and then took a five-Sunday break in December to talk about of the coming of Christ and looking at some Christmas messages. So that was a blessing to be able to do that. And so we're going to come back now with the new year to the book of Corinthians. We'll pick up in chapter 2 where we left off last time. Six weeks ago, uh, we covered chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. So today we're going to look at verses 10 through 16. And just by way of review, uh, we talked about and introduced the book of Corinthians This was a church that the Apostle Paul, he was a church planter. Paul planted many churches. God used him and other saints to do that and go from city to city, preach the gospel, and then people would believe, people would reject and build on a nucleus of believers and then establish a local church, which is God's pattern for building the church around the world. And Paul did that in Corinth. Corinth, a very worldly city and cosmopolitan city and at the nexus of so many different countries and uh, places of geography and people coming and going on the coast there. So it was a huge city in terms of that time and very complex, cosmopolitan, as I said, people from around the world and all of their beliefs and different ideologies and practices and moralities and would bring it and converge on the city of Corinth. And so the city of Corinth, actually, in terms of its makeup and demographics, was just a hodgepodge of everything the world had to offer, including finances and economics and different moralities and actually immorality reigned supreme as the morality of the day in Corinth. And so we could liken Corinth of 2000 years ago very much to our own city of something like uh, San Francisco here in the Bay Area that we're familiar with in terms of being cosmopolitan and a lot of people, a lot of people from different areas, but also in terms of its morality, views of religion, ethics, uh, economics. Uh, So this is really relevant and practical for us because We are definitely influenced by the surroundings in our midst. We are all uh, susceptible to being influenced by where we live and a product many times of where we live in terms of how we think and how we live and our worldview and whether we like it or not, uh, our own personal beliefs are much influenced by where we were born, where we are raised, and where we currently live. And so it's a good time to do some self-evaluation. How is this world in this area of Northern California and the Bay Area influencing me as a Christian from day to day because we're inundated by so much from the world from day to day. And so Paul went into this very pagan city, preached the gospel, got some response. People believed, started a church, pastored that church for a year and a half, and then God moved him on and he was away for a couple of years plus and the church was growing, but then the church got into some trouble with some challenges and compromise with the world and began to get a bad reputation. And then Paul had to write this letter a few years later to kind of straighten the Corinthians out with biblical truth because they were having some challenges. And so that's what we have introduced so far as the problems going on in Corinth and how Paul is dealing with those. And we'll go all the way to chapter 16. Uh, Paul planted many churches, not just the church in Corinth. Um, he planted a church in Philippi and Thessalonica. These are just different cities. and um, Probably up to 15 plus churches that Paul actually planted and pastored and worked at. And they all, all these local churches have a unique personality. And if you've been reading the Bible any time and if you've been a Christian for a while, grown up in the church, and if I were to ask you, what was the church of Corinth like? What was its personality? Probably some adjectives maybe come to your mind. Usually it's negative if you've read the New Testament at all. When you think, of what was the church of Corinth like? Um, people will typically say something negative. Compromised, immoral, divisive, bad theology, gave Paul a hard time. Those would actually all be true. Um, but there were things to be thankful for as well in the church because that's how Paul begins his letter in Corinth is to the Corinthians. He thanks that they received the gospel, embraced the gospel. So it's not just all bad. And the reason that's relevant and practical for us is 
uh, as Christians, it is a tendency, I think, when we see another so-called professing Christian sinning or compromising or delving into things they shouldn't be delving into, a lot of times as Christians, we just automatically make the assumption, oh, they're probably not really a Christian. I mean, think about that. Have you ever have you ever done that, or have you ever heard that said by a Christian about another person, another Christian? Oh, they're, because they're doing that, they're probably not a Christian. And a lot of times we do that flippantly, without much thought, without any due process. And the reason I'm saying that is because we're going to get into the, the church at Corinth, and we're going to see a lot of yuckiness, <laughs> all kinds of sin. Started off in chapter 1 with unbelievable, factious, divisive behavior, backbiting, undermining the pastor who started the church, who was a called apostle of God Almighty Himself. How in the world can a real Christian do what they did to Paul? True Christians wouldn't really do that. Then we're going to see the unbelievable sexual immorality that was going on in the church. Some people would say, well, that kind of sexual immorality can't go on in the life of a real Christian, so check, they must not be a real Christian. Yet if you read the whole book of Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, he actually never really says that. He doesn't just jump to the conclusion, oh, the ones with all of their problems, the divisiveness and the immorality and bad theology, you must not be a Christian. Paul doesn't say that. At least he doesn't start out that way. He starts with the assumption they are true believers. They truly embraced the gospel. They are truly born again. And as a result... He assumes the best, and that is that these are true believers, truly regenerated and loved by God, who have fallen into sin. And that is a very, very, very important lesson for us because Christians can fall into sin. Or I could turn that the other way around. Can Christians fall into sin? Yes. Can they fall into amazing, gross, egregious sin? Yes. As a matter of fact, I believe that Christians can fall prey to some of the most unbelievable sins imaginable none of us are um, shielded from that we are all susceptible to all kinds of sin and when you've been in the ministry and been pastoring for 20 plus years you know from experience that that is true because that's what a pastor does behind the scenes is deals with people mostly christians and who share their struggles and their sin and you find out wow christians battle with every conceivable sin and we've got to help them work through it, repent from it, turn from it, get God's help to overcome it. Uh, so that's the main argument, practical truth we need to take away from this. There are some weeds among the wheat in Corinth. There are some false professing Christians. There are phonies in the midst. That's always true as well. That's what makes it difficult. How do you separate the phonies, those who truly are not regenerate, from those who are Christians who are just compromising and are in sin right now. How do you separate the two? Answer, we don't. That's God's job because only God can judge the human heart. Ultimately, only God can know who's saved and who's not saved. My best friend is my wife. I would say she's a Christian. But in the end, I don't know ultimately where she's at spiritually. And the same is true about me. Only God knows. So we have to be very careful at making presumptuous judgments about fellow professing believers who found themselves in a mess and in sin. And there's a delicate balance there. Can a Christian ever then decree that this professing Christian is indeed not a Christian? Well, yeah, actually, yes. And only one time. And that's after they have gone through a very systematic, laid-out process called church discipline given to us in Matthew 18, Matthew 5, 1 Corinthians 5, and other, uh, Titus chapter 3, where the church is responsible for taking a professing Christian who's a sinner and then going step by step, carefully, prayerfully, with accountability. And if you read Matthew 18, there's a four-step process, and it ends not on a good note, but on a bad note. It ends on the church corporately determining and announcing that that so-called professing believer is indeed not a believer. They are a tax gatherer and like a Pharisee. And we shall treat them as such. Uh, so that's the process. So we can't be presumptuous, circumvent the process, and just say, oh, uh, they must not be Christians because they're behaving like this. So keep that in mind as we're looking at the Corinthians because 
Some of them are pretty messed up. With that, let's go ahead and uh, read and pick up verses 10 through 16. Titled this uh, portion of the Scripture, The Spirit at Work in the Church. Because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is introduced at the beginning of this chapter too. And then the Spirit is the main subject of conversation in verses 6 through following. He's the main character. So Paul is emphasizing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I could have put the work of the Holy Spirit, but that would be too generic because Paul's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, in the local church with fellow believers. Uh, what is the Holy Spirit doing in the local church? What's he doing with fellow believers? We need to recognize that, what he's doing. That's relevant to solving the Corinthians' problem. Oh, before I read verses 10 through 16, what was the Corinthians' main problem Paul's still talking about? To refresh your memory, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says in verse 11, For I have been informed concerning you Christians at Corinth, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And then verse 10 says there are divisions among you. There are schisms among you. So that's the main problem. They are divisive. They are factious. They are divided up in cliques. There's finger pointing. There's illegitimate loyalties and alliances going on. And that is creating tumult in the church. It is utterly Christ, unchrist-like. It is utterly sinful and should not be tolerated in the church. It undermines everything that the gospel stands for. And so from verse 11 on all the way up to chapter 4, Paul is dealing with this issue of factious, divisive, quarrelsome, cliquish behavior in the Corinthian assembly. And so Paul's remedy is the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 to solve this problem by addressing their thinking. They are behaving wrongly because they are thinking wrongly. That is biblical Christianity. We always behave wrong because first we thought wrong. So start at verse 10 in chapter 2. For to us, the apostles, God revealed them, biblical truth, through the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men or humans knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of that man, which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Verse 14, But a natural man, an unbeliever, a person who doesn't have the Spirit living in them does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For those things are foolishness, moronic, literally, to him. The unbeliever cannot, cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or discerned or judged. But he who is spiritual, the Christian, appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Wow, that's a heavy-duty passage. And we'll just try to hit some of the highlights. But it's impossible to exhaust all the riches here just in the, the short time that we have together. So let's go ahead and look at this. Uh, divided into three sections here as Paul is talking about the importance of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is at work in the church. Uh, the Corinthians' main problem we're going to see at the beginning of chapter 3, at the end of chapter 2, is that some of these Corinthians were spiritually immature. So immaturity was the problem. Wherever you have division, divisiveness in the church, wherever you have Christians squabbling and arguing and fighting with each other, you have Christians, if indeed they are Christians, you have immature Christians. Seasoned, stable, mature, godly, consistent believers do not engage in ongoing, divisive, quarrelsome behavior with other Christians. That's clear in many different passages, but Paul's going to address that. And so that's kind of the crescendo of his argument is, you know, the problem is, is that, yeah, you're Christians, but you're totally immature. You're carnal, you're fleshly. So the Corinthians were being immature, and that's why they were being divisive. Also, a big part of the problem of being divisive is they were prideful. A lot of these Corinthians were know-it-alls. They thought they had a corner on the truth. And unfortunately, the corner of truth that they were gravitating towards and, 
incorporating into their worldview was the wisdom of the world. It was human wisdom that was in their Greek and Roman culture that was passed down for centuries and refined and impressive and persuasive. The wisdom of the Greeks, uh, known as eloquence, and it was outward and it was showy and it was flowery and it was exemplified with impressive words and impressive argumentation with the likes of Aristotle and others who had come before them. And so that kind of wisdom reigned supreme in their day. And we have the same kind of worldly wisdom that reigns supreme in our culture and in our area today where we live. Worldly wisdom, things like evolution, it's just considered that's a fact. It's a universal fact, evolution. No, that's worldly wisdom. It's not a fact. And so many other worldly wisdoms and so-called science that reign supreme in our day that we're confronted with this Christians, well, this was the problem with the Corinthians. They were prideful because they thought they were know-it-alls. They thought they knew more than the Apostle Paul himself. They thought he was a buffoon, many of them, and that he wasn't really smart or wise because he wasn't eloquent eloquent when he spoke. He was rather simplistic and didn't wax eloquent and wasn't a master of rhetoric trained in the schools of the rhetoricians of Greece. So they actually began to have a lower and lower view of the Apostle Paul, their, their former pastor. And so they became puffed up with pride more and more like a big balloon. Their head's about ready to explode. So Paul needs to put them in their place and remind them, you're not uh, accessing and depending upon God's wisdom at all. You've bought into the wisdom of the world, and that's messed up your thinking, and as a result, that's messed up your behavior, and as a result, that's causing division in our church, undermining harmony and peace in the church, undermining the work of the Holy Spirit. And so... He had to address their thinking. They, the problem, the Corinthians, they wanted a foot in the church and they wanted a foot in the world. That's actually a common temptation to Christians. So their thinking needs to be corrected. Um, notice this. He says, you're divisive, that's your problem. And then he actually, in verse 12 of chapter 1, look there. How were they divisive? How was it manifest and displayed and diagnosed? What did it, this division look like in the church? That's verse 12 of chapter 1. Now, I mean this. This is what it looks like. This is what I heard. Each one of you, these four camps, is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Peter or Cephas, and I am of Christ. So that was what was being verbalized, these loyalties to human beings, and then the last loyalty to Christ, these pure, pristine, arrogant, prideful ones. So that was the manifestation of what this division looked like. Well, notice that and how parallel that is. Now go to chapter 3, verse 4, when Paul says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. So there's the bookends. Paul's talking about the same thing all throughout chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And in between the problems, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos in chapter 1, and I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos in chapter 3. In the middle, the linchpin, and the main thing that needs to be addressed is chapter 2, which is the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church and in an individual Christian's life. And until the Corinthians get that right, they're going to continue to be divisive and prideful. Because their pride problem is due to the fact that they think they can attain real knowledge about the world and even about spiritual things strictly through human education and through studying and through intuition and that it comes naturally or it comes through research or it comes through empiricism or it comes through experience all these kinds of gaining knowledge are at the human level the natural level and they think they've got access to all of it because greece was the smartest country and region in the world and so they are puffed up with pride because of all this knowledge they think they have they know more than the apostle paul and so paul's main argument in chapter two is you don't know anything at all because you're not getting spiritual wisdom from these resources and sources that you think you are spiritual wisdom comes from only one place it comes from god and you're seeking it in the wrong place you're seeking it at the human level and real spiritual truth comes from beyond the human level only from god and you guys have missed the point You've bought into the wisdom of the world. There's another kind of wisdom, a heavenly wisdom, a spiritual wisdom, a religious wisdom, and it only comes from God. And so that's the gist of his argument. So let's go ahead and look at it. So he wants to set them straight. So if you are a Christian and you want to grow and you want to mature and you want to be a peacemaker and not a troublemaker, 
and you want to live at peace and unity with other believers and be a blessing to Christ and to your local church and to other believers, then you have to master an understanding of the Holy Spirit, his role in the church and his role in your life and how he works with biblical spiritual truth. And so that's the lesson Paul wants to give us. And we can take that away. So three things about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the local church. Uh, Point number one, I'm just going to give you the answers, all three. And then we'll go from there. Uh, Number one, the Corinthians need to understand the role of the Holy Spirit. What is his role? Well, he knows the thoughts of God. The Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of God. Number two, we need to understand the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Specifically, that he worked through the apostles. He dispensed truth from God the Father through the conduits of these apostles, including the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul wasn't an idiotic, untrained buffoon after all. He was a vessel from Almighty God to distribute spiritual, universal, binding truth that the Corinthians needed to heed, apply, submit to. And then finally, number three, the role of the Holy Spirit. There are two responses to the work of the Holy Spirit as he gives truth and reveals information. So contrary to what the Corinthians thought, or at least the way they were living life, that there were four factions in the church, all these camps, the Paul faction, the Apollos faction, and these elitist groups and this stratification of human personalities, which is typical of Greek human culture, Paul said that's not reality. There shouldn't be any factions or categories in the church. We're all one in Christ. There's only actually two factions in the world. Unbelievers and believers. Those who have the Spirit and those who don't have the Spirit. Those who know Christ and those who don't. Those are the only two factions that exist in the world. Every single human being is diagnosed with one of those two realities. They either know Jesus or they don't. That's it. Ultimately, in terms of importance before God. So there are two responses to the work and the revelation and the truth of the Holy Spirit. Always, anytime you're talking to anybody. People either reject the truth of God or they submit to it. And we're going to see that unbelievers routinely, of their own volition, Reject the truth of God. So let's go ahead and look at first uh, verses 10 and 11 about the role of the Holy Spirit and his amazing role. Uh, Starting at verse 10, for to us, God revealed them through the spirit. So in context, uh, chapter two, all goes together. Where do we leave off for to us? Who's that? Well, Paul's talking primarily about the apostles for to us, for to me and Apollos and Peter that you guys pit against each other and the other Ten apostles of Jesus Christ, responsible for preaching Jesus' revelation, responsible for writing down the New Testament. For to us, the apostles, God has revealed or unveiled supernatural spiritual truth. That's the word for revealed in verse 10. It's apocalypsis, apocalypto. That's supernatural revelation that God gives at his initiative to human beings at his discretion that he unveils truth that we didn't understand, that we couldn't understand on our own. This is supernatural divine truth that no human being on their own could just exercise logic and deduce these truths. These are spiritual realities that can only be known because God initiates the revelation of it. So God reveals the truth, like the reality that hell is a real place, that it is eternal, that it is deserved, that it is burning heat, that it is a conscious place, and that people go there because they reject Christ. The doctrine of hell, we would know nothing about it, except for the fact that God revealed it to us. That's a revelation He gave us. No one in their right mind through sheer human logic, intuition, empirical evidence, and experience would ever come up with the doctrine of hell. It came one way, through the revelation of God, through the Spirit, through His prophets and apostles, and it was written down for us, and that's why we believe in it. So that's what He's talking about. For to us, the apostles, God has revealed and given supernatural revelation, and He's done it through the Holy Spirit. So that is the job of the Holy Spirit. His role is to reveal the mind of God the Father. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's the revelator. He's also the illuminator of divine revelation. Well, how is that possible that God reveals supernatural truth to the Holy Spirit? Well, that's the second part of verse 10. Well, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The Spirit can reveal truth about God the Father because the Holy Spirit has the ability to, present tense, He ongoing searches the mind of God. The Spirit of God reads the mind of the Father. Um, You ever heard of a mind reader? Most of those here on earth, they're phonies. The only true mind reader is the Spirit of God. He reads the minds of God the Father, and He reads the mind of every human being. 
And that's what it's talking about. The Holy Spirit actually knows every thought of God the Father, every thought of Christ, every thought of the Trinity. He searches it continually. Nothing escapes His knowledge. The Holy Spirit is a person, by the way. He doesn't have a body. He is an eternal spirit. And He searches the depths of God. And in context, what are the depths of God? Well, they're the thoughts of God, but specifically the purposes of God regarding salvation and the Gospel. Because that's what Paul is talking about. The Gospel was not invented by man. The Gospel was revealed, it was invented by God the Father and revealed by the Father through the Spirit to humans. And even when it is revealed, it's still hidden unless you believe in faith. If you don't believe the supernatural revelation of God, by faith that you're still blind and you still can't see it. It's still hidden from you. So the role of the Spirit is to reveal the very mind and the depths and the thoughts of God regarding the plan of salvation in Christ. It is a mystery that has been revealed. It has been hidden for hundreds of years. It has now been revealed through the apostles. Verse 11, For who among humans knows the thoughts of a human except the spirit of that human? So uh, right now Paul's saying, by way of analogy, you're sitting there quietly, respectfully. I applaud you. Thank you. Uh, who knows what you're thinking about? I don't know what you're thinking about. Some of you are sleeping. Some of you seem to be paying attention. Some of you, I don't know what you're thinking about. And nobody knows. The only one that knows what's going on in your mind right now is you, your own spirit, your own self-conscious awareness. And nobody else can get into your mind. That's what he's saying. That's what he means by verse 11. For who among people knows their deepest thoughts at any given moment except that person and their self-conscious spirit that gives them awareness of what they're thinking about in their own self-existence. Their own spirit is what searches their thought, their heart, their mind. And it's invisible and only their spirit knows it. No human being can look at you and know, oh, I know what you're thinking. So don't give your money to the palm reader. They're lying. So that's his analogy. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man? Also, even so, by way of analogy, even so the thoughts of God or the mind of God or the self-consciousness of God or the plans of God hidden in God, nobody knows. Isn't that a, That's an amazing and profound statement that no one knows the thoughts of God. Nobody. On, on a human level. And on a human level, nobody can come to know the thoughts of God. And that just kind of throws out man-made human religion and all the philosophies and ideologies of the world that are trying to pursue God and eternal things and transcendent things and metaphysical things by sheer human logic or experience or empiricism or intuition cannot, or rationalism cannot be done. No one knows the thoughts of God. That's what verse 11 says. Nobody. Well, wow, I want to know the thoughts of God. I don't want to be alienated. Well, it's possible. How, how in the world can I attain the knowledge of God's thoughts at the end of verse 11? No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the Spirit is key. The Holy Spirit is key of bridging the gap between an infinite, almighty, all-knowing God, creator of the universe, and fallen, finite human beings down here who don't know anything about God or what He thinks or what He purposes unless the Spirit of God intervenes and transfers that knowledge down to the human level where a human being can actually with confidence, truly know what God the Creator thinks and wills. It's all contingent upon the Holy Spirit and His work. He's the mediator of truth. So that is the role of the Spirit. Now, with that in mind, go to Matthew chapter 11 if you have your Bible handy. And we're going to flip from Matthew 11 to Matthew 16 to highlight this truth. That no one knows the thoughts of God, no one knows the purposes of God, no one knows what God is like, no one knows what God wants, no one can reach God on a human level of knowledge or logic. And actually, that's the point of my whole book on apologetics. All these philosophers from all the ages trying to reach God and the life after and spiritual realities and eternal realities with sheer human logic, they can't do it. It's futile. But they don't understand that. It has to be by revelation. And it has to be by revelation through the Holy Spirit. And it has to be by revelation through the Holy Spirit and then believed in faith by the human receiver. So in Matthew 11, look at verse 25. Matthew 11:25 is on the heels of Jesus doing public ministry where he spent doing all kinds of miracles in a couple of familiar cities where he worked. Verse 21 in Chorazin and Bethsaida and 
close to his hometown. And who knows how many months now he's been doing miracles that they saw with their own eyes. Raising the dead. Many of them maybe were even recipients of the miracles that he performed. And even though he performed miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, most of the people in Chorazin and Bethsaida who saw the miracles of Christ and benefited from the miracles of Christ, they refused to believe and they would not repent and embrace Christ. They were as calloused and dark and blinded as can be. And Christ was very frustrated. And so he pronounces judgment on them. Wow, I can't believe this. Miracle after miracle after miracle after. And you still don't believe me. That's how powerful and blinding personal sin can be. And satanic blindness as well. So as a result, verse 25, listen to this. Jesus' response to this unbelief. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. He's praying. I praise you, Father in heaven, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. See, there it is. They couldn't receive the spiritual truth because somehow, mysteriously, God prevented these arrogant, prideful know-it-alls from understanding it and believing it. Almost an act of judgment because of their rebellious heart and unwillingness to believe and repent. So God hid these spiritual truths from them. And I thank you, God the Father, that you have revealed these, unveiled these truths to the infants. What is an infant? Uh, Jesus made that clear also in Matthew, that an infant was just simply a, a person who just simply believes in the word of Christ at face value in faith. They just believe by faith. So that's the key. We can understand supernatural spiritual truths unveiled by God and revealed by God only through simple faith, not human knowledge or human wisdom. We use our brain, but it's by faith. And that's why Augustine so rightfully said, I believe in order that I might understand. I believe in order that I might understand. Or I believe that I might know. Uh, similar sentence. Look at uh, Matthew 16. At the end of his ministry, he'd been working with his apostles for almost three years, giving them a seminary education firsthand wherever they went. Many people were rejecting Christ. Many people were confused about who he was. Many were mislabeling him. When Jesus said in Matthew uh, 16, verse 13, he asked his apostles, who do people say that I am? In verse 14 of Matthew 16, well, wow, some people think you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead, and others think you're Elijah, reincarnate, and others think you're Jeremiah or some prophet. Those were all wrong. And then Jesus gets real personal and asks his apostles, well, who do you guys think I am? Simon Peter blurts out, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was true. And then look at how Jesus commends Peter in verse 17. He didn't say, way to go, Peter. You're... The laws of logic paid off or your empiricism paid off or your intuition paid off or your common sense paid off. No. Because it didn't come through human knowledge, it was a supernatural revelation of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that Peter received because he had faith in Christ. And as a result, verse 17, Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Makarios, Makaria, the feminine, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood... This was not on a human level. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this amazing, wonderful truth to you, but it was my Father in heaven who revealed it to you. He revealed it. He opened your eyes. He enabled you to believe by giving you the truth of the Word of God. So go back to Corinthians. And that's Paul's point. That's the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit. We can't understand anything that comes from God that's true about ultimate spiritual reality unless God reveals it and allows us to believe it. That's the, the role of the Holy Spirit. Let's go on to number 2, verses 12 and 13. We need to understand the revelation of the Holy Spirit and how He works. And so verse 12 says, Now, or actually it's a, a contrast, I believe, that conjunction should be but. It's, he's making a contrast. He just Because He just said, Nobody knows the thoughts of God. That could be disparaging and discouraging. No human being knows the thoughts of God. Well, I want to know the thoughts of God. How discouraging and frustrating, Paul. And he says, but don't be discouraged. Because as a human, you can't know the thoughts of God on your own. But you have the capability to come to know God's thoughts. But we have received, and I think, again, the we there, primarily Paul's talking about the apostles, but by way of extension, and secondarily, it would be true of every Christian who's born again and has the Spirit, but primarily as an apostle. But we, have but we have received divine revelation, not the Spirit of the world, referring to human wisdom, 
but we have received the Spirit who is from God. So the Apostle Paul, when he got saved and became a Christian, as soon as he believed and got saved, the Spirit of God came to actually live in the Apostle Paul. And the Spirit of God would be in the Apostle Paul until he died. And it was the Spirit living in Paul that God would use to allow him as an apostle to speak divine revelation to other believers. And that truth that the Spirit lived in Paul is true of any other Christian as well since the days of Paul. The moment you believe in the gospel and you repent of your sins and you become born again and you're a real bona fide Christian on your birthday when you get saved, one of the greatest presents that God gives you is He gives you the indwelling Holy Spirit to live in you. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you have the Spirit of God living in you. And He's been living in you and with you since the day you got saved. And He will continue to live in you and be with you until Jesus comes or until you die and go to heaven. So going back to verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, in order that we may know the things freely given to us by God. There it is. No human knows the thoughts of God, but the end of verse 12. But we can know the thoughts of God. There it is. That's an amazing, great truth. You can know as a human being the thoughts of Almighty, eternal, infinite God. If you're a Christian, because you have the Spirit living in you, and the Spirit of God is allowing you access to know the mind of God. Verse 13. So I as an apostle, Paul says, I have the Spirit living in me. I have access to the eternal thoughts of God. I tried to give those to you when I came and preached in Corinth. They're in this letter that I'm writing to you, the thoughts of God. Verse 13, which things we also speak, we preach on a regular basis. And when we do preach in the name of Christ, we're not doing it in words taught by human wisdom. We're not using rhetoric, the strategy of the Greeks on a human level. But in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. He's talking about the preaching ministry. And so the preaching ministry that God gave Paul through the Holy Spirit enables the Apostle Paul to give divine, revealed truth to other people so that they can know the thoughts and the mind of God. And so Paul's reminding them, wow, here's how you guys think you're so smart, Corinthians, and you're belittling me. Everything you know that is true about God, you got from me, the Apostle, because I revealed it to you through the Spirit of God that God gave me. So he's trying to put them in their place respectfully and rightfully so. And taking jabs at their inflated views of themselves and their misunderstanding about how intelligent and smart they are. So that is the revelation that God does and did through the apostles. God gave the New Testament to us through the apostles, by the way. And they were the ones that wrote it down and had it preserved for us. And so to this day, there's nothing we can know about Jesus and there's nothing true we can know about God, really, specifically, apart from Scripture and in the Holy Spirit who illumines our understanding. So the role of the Holy Spirit, the revelation of the Holy Spirit, and then finally, let's look at responses to the work of the Holy Spirit in these two areas, especially how God gives truth and reveals truth to human beings. So that's number three, two responses to the Holy Spirit. People either reject spiritual truth when they hear it or they submit to it and so that's why when you're going out maybe you're talking to a neighbor who's not a christian or a relative you have who's not a christian or a co-worker and you're not maybe you're not even doing evangelism maybe you're just sharing a truth about something like the definition of marriage and over the christmas or thanksgiving dinner table the conversation comes up and there's a lot of unbelieving family members there and for whatever reason that topic comes up and the majority of the opinion is that Marriage is between anybody that's consenting adult who loves them, each other. And you're thinking, mm, that's not true. And you actually, as a Christian, you're dogmatic in your mind with clarity. You, mm, that is not, that's, that's wrong, actually. Because you're, as a Christian, you're thinking, no, marriage is actually between a man and a woman who are married because God has provided that institute. God created marriage between man and woman for life. The only reason we know that marriage is one man and one woman married by God for life is because God revealed that to us in Scripture, really. He defined it very specifically. As a matter of fact, did you know there's actually nothing we can really know for certainty apart from God revealing it to us and explaining it to us? I mean, you think about Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve, and even though they were sinless, they had a lot of ignorance. 
They did not automatically know through intuition or through rationalization or the laws of logic and conclude in their little huddle together after debating and thinking and logically proceeding, we have concluded that we probably can eat from all of these other trees and we should probably lay off of that tree over there because we have concluded that if we ate from that tree over there, we would probably die. No. And in a zillion years, they never would have come up with that conclusion just by virtue of creation. God had to intervene even before they committed a sin and tell them, okay, guys, I'm your creator. I made you. You're Adam. You're Eve. You're married. Enjoy each other. And all these trees out there are made for you. And you can eat from all of them. Oh, by the way, don't go near that. Don't touch that. Don't eat that one. Because in the day that you eat from that one, you shall surely die. What's death? What does dying mean? And then probably God had to try to explain it. But anyway, uh, just bad news. Don't do it. So that's just one example of where everything in life had to be divinely interpreted. And that's true today. Everything about us and ultimate reality has to be interpreted to us uh, by divine revelation. That is scripture. That is the Bible. That's why we live by the book. General revelation is not sufficient. We can't understand things truly just because by virtue of creation. But we have to have it interpreted specifically by God through the work of the Spirit. And we're still not going to understand it accurately until we believe in simple faith. So if you believe that marriage is an institution created by God in the very beginning, by His plan, one man, one woman, before God, for life, for perpetuating the human race, and more importantly, as an example and a living metaphor of the church of Christ that is married to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the main purpose of marriage today. An ongoing revelation of Christ to His church. If you believe all that, the only reason you believe it is because God revealed it to you through Scripture and you actually believe by faith. And anytime you deviate from Scripture, you're going to end up with the wrong view. And anytime you deviate from Scripture and end up with the wrong view, you're going to end up with wrong thinking. And anytime you deviate from Scripture and have a wrong view and have wrong thinking, then you will always have wrong behavior as a result. And that was the Corinthians' problem. So let's go back there uh, to this last response, these two responses to biblical truth. Um, here it is, verse 14 through 16. But a natural man, natural man, that's an unbelieving man. That's an unbelieving person. Somebody who's not a Christian. Somebody who's not a Christian, who does, here's the key, who does not have the Spirit of God living in them. So those, those are the two divisions in life. Believers and unbelievers. That's it. Those who know Christ and those who don't. The natural and the supernatural is what he's saying. So think about every unbelieving person you have in your life that's a friend, an acquaintance, or whoever. Good, the bad, and the ugly. They are somewhere on that spectrum of very good friends of yours, very nice, uh, an immediate relative, somebody you can't stand, somebody you despise, somebody who mocks you because you're a Christian. So they're on the spectrum. But the bottom line is they're all in the same camp. They don't know Christ. They're without the Spirit. They are natural. They are not supernatural. They are limited in what they can understand about God. They are actually blind. They're in a spiritual darkness. They're blinded by Satan himself. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that. And they're blinded by their own sin until they are saved. Not only that, they're not just in unbelief and darkness. They have hostility towards the things that are true about God and Christ. That is the actual state of an unbeliever whether they manifest it overtly or not. That's what's going on in their heart, according to Scripture. So a natural man, an unbeliever, does not get this, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The Greek word is does not welcome the things of God. It's not hospitable to the truth of God. It's not just the natural man doesn't believe the things of God or the natural man doesn't understand the things of God or the natural man doesn't quite get No, the natural, the unbeliever doesn't welcome it. In other words, he is hostile to it. I I don't want to hear that. I don't want to talk about that. Or they just creatively and quietly and quickly change the subject. And all of a sudden you're talking about the NFL football game or something. Well, how how did that happen? How did we get off uh, Jesus? Well, that's why. They don't welcome it. They don't welcome these things. Well, how do you get saved and become a Christian if you don't welcome biblical truth? Well, you can't. Becoming a Christian is impossible. 
Becoming a Christian would take a miracle. Becoming a Christian would take a supernatural act of God. And that's exactly what happens. If you became a Christian, it didn't come naturally. It came supernaturally. It was not humanly possible. God intervened in your life and did one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world. God doesn't do miracles anymore like he did in the days of Jesus. You know, actually, he does, and he does greater miracles today than he did in the days of Jesus. He's still saving people, regenerating them, transferring them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear, blessed son, Jesus Christ. Salvation is the greatest miracle of all, isn't it? And that's the only way it can happen. A natural man does not welcome the things of God. He doesn't welcome spiritual truth or biblical truth. That doesn't mean you stop talking to the unbelievers. You keep talking. You keep giving them the Word of God. Because the Word of God is inherently powerful. It is living and active. And whether they accept it or not, it goes into their ears, into their brain, into their conscience. And the Spirit of God continues to use it forevermore, all of their days, working on their heart, wooing them, convicting them, softening them, and someday, Lord willing, removing all of their blinders and they get saved. So we have to keep giving out spiritual truth. Not our human arguments, but biblical truth. Biblical truth. The living Word of God. Scripture. Scripture. That is what God uses. And especially Scripture contained in the message of the Gospel, right? For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's where the power is. In the Word of God. So the natural man doesn't accept it. For they are foolishness to him. This is moronic. This is idiotic. This is uh, homophobic. This is what, I mean, you're an idiot. You're unscientific. And on and on it goes because of what you believe as a Christian because you got it out of the Bible. You will be called a fool. Maybe you've already been called a fool. Or you're considered a fool. Well, that's what God predicted. Unbelievers don't welcome the truth of the Bible. They think it is moronic or foolishness. They think you're an idiot. You don't know anything. You are uneducated. You are closed-minded. you got your head in the sand. Then you should be saying thank you every time they say that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. That's what Jesus did. Thank you, Father in heaven, for hiding this from these proud people and revealing it to babes. All to your glory. But the Word of God will keep doing its work. Keep doing its work. Keep doing. Man, I think about there are some people I've been praying for their salvation ever since I got saved for 20, going on 30 years. I'm thinking, God, are they ever going to get saved? I, I can't give up. I've got to keep praying, and every time I've got to give them biblical truth, give them the gospel, give them the word of God. It is living. It is active. It's working. It is working. The Spirit doesn't give up. So the unbeliever doesn't welcome it. Why? Well, he can't. Middle of verse 14. He cannot understand them. Not even able. Because they are spiritual, because it's a spiritual level. It has to be a revelation of God through the Spirit of God, through faith and belief in the Word of God. Otherwise, it ain't going to happen. Not human logic that will convince them. Man-made human logic, but supernatural spiritual logic and the work of God. Verse 15, but and then the contrast. Here's, so the unbeliever rejects the Word of God, and then the believer welcomes the Word of God. But he who is spiritual, she who is spiritual, any Christian... That's all it's talking about. Every believer appraises all things. What that's saying is every believer has the ability to understand and discern the spiritual world and spiritual realities. I don't care how old you are. If you're a Christian, you have the ability to discern spiritual. It's like the light goes on and you can see the world for what it really is. There is a heaven. There is a hell. There's salvation only in Christ. I was made in the image of God. Christ is real. He's the only judge. God is the creator. All those truths. As a Christian, you are able to understand, appraise, and discern. And yet... As a Christian, you are not appraised or judged by anybody. In other words, as a Christian, you are not allowed to be judged by unbelievers in the world and by their false human standards of knowledge. And that's what was going on with the Apostle Paul. Paul was being judged and critiqued by the Corinthian Christians by the false human standard that they got in Greece, which was false human wisdom. And Paul saying, you can't judge me. A spiritual man regarding spiritual truth that I got from God using Aristotle's standard of truth. That's what verse 15 is saying. And then verse 16. And then this great conclusion. After he's already said, no human being can know the mind of God. It is impossible. Then verse 16, he quotes from Isaiah 40, 13. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, no one has. Nobody is his counselor. Nobody can educate God. God doesn't learn. God doesn't grow. God isn't changing. God knows all things. He is infinite in his knowledge. He is perfect and eternal in his knowledge. And no one knows the deepest recesses of his thoughts and his plans and his purposes for all of eternity. No one. Who's known the mind of the Lord? 
by the way, the Lord taken out of Isaiah, who has known the mind of Yahweh Almighty God. And then Paul's answer, you would expect the answer to be nobody. That's not his answer. The end of verse 16. But here's the answer. We have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of the Lord. We, if you are a Christian and the Spirit of God lives in you, the answer is now, according to Isaiah 40, you know the mind of Yahweh. Isn't that amazing? That is a promise and true of every Christian. If you are a born-again, Bible-believing Christian, truly regenerate, then you know and have access to the infinite mind of Yahweh through revelation that God has given through Scripture for us today and is taught to us by the Spirit of God and embraced in a reality in our life because of simple faith. We, as a Christian, we have the mind of Christ. Wow, isn't that a wonderful thought to go to lunch with? I know for a fact the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ as it is found in His revelation, the Holy Scriptures. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for our time together, the time to fellowship with the saints, to worship you through song, to worship you through prayer, uh, to be blessed by one another, uh, to be exposed to the truth of Scripture together, to learn your precious word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our indwelling teacher. for enlightening our understanding, illuminating our understanding regarding these amazing spiritual realities that before we were Christians, we had no access to whatsoever. But as your precious children, uh, that's our inheritance. We have the privilege to know what you are thinking, what you have thought, Father. Thank you for being a wonderful Father. Lord Jesus, thank you for being a blessed Savior. Holy Spirit, thank you for being such a faithful teacher, protector, and provider and we give you all the glory god help us to go into this day and this week as we confront it with all the challenges of life and all the doubts that we have and all of our struggles with that great refrain ringing forevermore in our head that we know the mind of christ we give you all the glory we pray in christ's name amen thank you for listening dr mcmanus is an author seminary professor and pastor teacher of grace bible fellowship For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.